Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The race to replace Boris Johnson is well underway, with Penny Mordaunt emerging as the surprise insurgent thanks to her optimistic outlook. Recently, I think our party has lost its sense of self. If I can compare it to being in the Glastonbury audience when Paul McCartney was playing his set, (laughs) we indulged all those new tunes, but what we really wanted was the good old stuff that we all knew the words to. (laughs) Low tax, small state, personal responsibility. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be delving into the two classes of contenders to be the next UK Prime Minister, the frontrunners and the outsiders. First up, our political editor George Parker and associate editor Stephen Bush will be examining the candidacy of Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor who is in pole position, along with the surprise surge of Penny Mordaunt, who you heard at the top. And later, our chief political correspondent Jim Picard and our columnist Camilla Cavendish will be looking at the other three contenders with a slightly lesser chance of getting the top job. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, the ex-equalities minister Kami Badnock and chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee Tom Tugginhat. Thank you all for joining the podcast. The race to be the next Tory party leader officially began this week when nominations opened on Tuesday and Tory MPs narrowed the initial field of eight through two rounds of shortlisting. Early contenders such as the Chancellor Nadeem Zahawi, Attorney General Suella Braverman and the ex-Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt were knocked out, leaving five candidates remaining. Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor who played a key role in defenestrating Boris Johnson, is all but certain to get a final slot in the shortlist of two. Unlike the others, he is not pledging swinging tax cuts. At his campaign launch on Tuesday, he pledged fiscal responsibility. I will achieve this because I have a clear plan to get our economy growing quickly. We need to implement the radical reforms I set out as Chancellor to the way businesses are taxed to make our country the best place in the world to invest more, train more and critically to innovate more. Well, George Parker, welcome back to the pod. It's great to have you on. It's been a very busy week for us. Before we get stuck into these top two contenders, just talk us through the process and where we're at as of Friday morning and where it's going to go next. Well, it's like one of those reality TV shows, uh, Seb, where the candidates have been knocked out one by one. Basically, it's a knockout uh, situation now. Initially, MPs had to achieve 20 nominations to join the first ballot. Few no-hopers dropped out at that stage. And then we went into the knockout round, where in the first round, you had to secure at least 30 votes to move through to the following round. And now following two rounds of voting, we're down to the final five contenders. That will then be whittled down further next week, another series of votes. And eventually, probably by Wednesday or Thursday, we'll end up with a short list of two candidates, which will then be presented to the party membership. We think there are roughly about 150,000 or so Tory members. 
And ultimately, they'll make the final decision who, on who the next Tory leader will be and therefore who the next prime minister will be. And the announcement of that will be made on September the 5th, the day the House of Commons returns from its summer break. With Stephen Bush, it's really great to have you back on the podcast. So give us your overview on where the race is at at this juncture. As we said, at the moment, based on the nominations and MPs, the top two contenders are Rishi Sunak and Penny Morden. What do you make of their standing at the moment? Well... Rishi Sunak starts in this weird position where on the one hand, he's had an incredible improvement in his fortunes, you know, based on where he was in the aftermath of all those questions about his tax affairs. On the other hand, he has not got the overwhelming support of the parliamentary party. He is very likely to be in the top two, but he is not going to be able to choose his preferred opponent, as contestants often try and do if they have enough nominations going spare. You know, there's probably only going to be about 30 votes between the the final three when it comes down to it. And more troublingly for him, every scrap of data we have suggests he will lose fairly heavily to whoever he faces among the party membership. So that's where where Rishi Sunak finds himself right now, struggling with the fact that every other candidate is offering, you know, immediate tax cuts now. And he is, you know, slightly oddly seeing as it's not like he liked the political strategy of the last Conservative government, essentially as the one having to defend the political and economic approach uh, of the, not, not the government just gone, but, you know, the government which is in the, in the antechamber. Now, George, let's look with Vishy Sunak. You were at his launch event this week, which was, as you expect, very slick and fresh. And Mr Sunak came out and he was endorsed at that moment by two quite big hitters in the cabinet, the Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, and the Transport Secretary, Grant Chaps. What did you make of the event? Because I watched it on TV and it came across fairly well, if maybe just a little bit too slick. What was it like to be in the room? Well, the first thing to say was it was relatively cool in the room, Seb, because a, a couple of the other launches, Penny Morton's and Sajid Javid, took place in the sort of spare room of an Indian restaurant, the Cinnamon Club nearby, and it was absolutely sweltering. I don't know why on earth anybody would choose to launch a campaign in a room with temperatures probably nudging up towards 45 degrees. So Sunak's campaign launch was, as you would expect, slick. It was air-conditioned. There were a couple of guests on stage, a bit like Paul McCartney with Dave Grohl and and Bruce Springsteen turning up, except in this case it was Dominic Raab and Grant Shapps. Nevertheless, that created a little bit of a buzz. But it was very controlled, and I think that's the issue, I think, with Rishi Sunak. Everything feels quite controlled. And when he faced awkward questions about, for example, his tax status, he just starts to sound a little bit brittle, I think. So I think that's the thing. Controlled, slick, but nevertheless, you feel, and Steve was alluding to this earlier, The whole his position still feels a little bit fragile for someone who's the front runner. Well, Stephen, you know, it's a kind of odd thing because if you look at Rishi Sunak, he is in pole position. He's got the most number of MPs and after the second round of voting, he topped over 100 MPs. Now, it wasn't quite the 110 some in his campaign wanted this week or certainly not the 120 that would have got him into the final two, which is threshold that's really got to be met. There is a sense that his campaign has not got, say, the momentum you might expect for a front runner, even though he is clearly the front runner. Well, I suppose the underlying issue is he is and he isn't the front runner. He's the front runner in that he is the first choice of the party establishment. He has attracted a huge amount of institutional and financial support, and he has convinced lots of MPs than he has Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers on side. Now, the thing about leadership elections is it matters a lot more what MPs believe about the candidates and whether or not that's actually true. So he seems the front runner from an institutional perspective, but in terms of 
the final stage of this contest, which is when members decide he is not the front runner. Every other candidate who is left in this race knows that if nothing were to change in the party in the country, they would defeat him. And that makes it hard if you're the front runner to stay the front runner. I think it's not the only reason why Penny Morden is doing a better than expected, but I think it's crucial to understanding that one reason why she is doing very well is that as well as her kind of core base on the liberal right of the party, she is acting as the kind of candidate of last resort for people on the left and center of the party who look at the polls and they look at the experience of the candidates and they go, well, okay, my heart might be with Rishi Sunak, but I fear that, you know, a Rishi Sunak list trust runoff leads, ends with list trust in Downing Street. So I better throw in behind Penny. He's kind of the front runner, but in a very important sense, he's not. And I think what's interesting, George, if you look at every other conservative leadership contest except Boris Johnson in 2019, the front runner in the first ballot actually tends to not get it because in 1997, it was Ken Clark who came first. And as we know, William Hague eventually won that. In 2001, Michael Portillo came first and it was eventually Ian Duncan Smith. And in 2005, it was David Davis who came first in the first ballot and he didn't win it either. So being the front runner is quite a dangerous place to be. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And there's always a danger that you start to lose momentum if you're the front runner as well. And you saw that in the second round of voting where I think there were about 55 votes up for grabs. You can read all about this in Stephen's excellent um, newsletter, of which only about, I think it was 13, went to Rishi Sunak. So it was progress in the second round, but by no means convincing progress. And I think that's the danger that people will start to think, hmm, you know, is he starting to lose momentum here? If he can get into the second round, all the data, as Stephen said, suggests that he would be crushed by Penny Mordant or Liz Truss. I'm still not totally convinced. I mean, the data is not perfect. Polling Tory members is not a particularly scientific thing to do. And I just wonder whether, given the fact we're heading into this economic snowstorm in the winter, whether the party membership will look at this and just take a step back. I think in a way it depends whether the party is almost in a sort of skittish fin de siècle mode where they're starting to think about, well, you know, we're getting a bit tired of being in office. Let's be true to ourselves. Let's go for a Brexiteer, a small state, and to hell with the consequences. It's the kind of thing that parties often do when they've just lost an election. If the party's serious about trying to hold on to power in two years' time, then going with a stable, well-tested candidate rather than taking a risk with Liz Trussell, Penny Morton, might be the thing they do. And it just depends entirely what the mood of the membership is over the summer. Now, one question for Rishi Sunak has not just been whether it's all too slick. One thing has been this question about whether his personal character is suited for this. And he did a rather brittle interview with the BBC where it was, it was put to him, are you simply too rich to be prime minister? I don't judge people by their bank accounts. I judge them by their character. And I think people can judge me by my actions over the past couple of years. Whenever I've needed to step in to support people, I have. And furlough is a fantastic example of that. But what I would say as a conservative is that I believe in hard work and aspiration. Well, Stephen, there is a fact that Rishi Sunak has come under a lot of heavy attack from Boris Johnson's allies. We had a story on last weekend's FT that called him a treacherous insert a rude word that we can't have on a family-friendly podcast. But there's been a subtle and some not-so-subtle constant stream of briefing that's been going on this week against Sunak. Do you think that's damages standing within the party? Or is it this question about his character and his background? And is he just, as I said, potentially too rich to be PM? So, no, the briefing absolutely has damaged him. I was speaking to the MP yesterday saying, oh, well, you know, I'd like to back Rishi, but 
Um, you know, I think he'll be the second coming of Dominic Cummings. And Tackman's been put out against him, you know, by allies of Boris Johnson and others. You have people kind of, you know, saying, oh, well, what about this? And there's, yeah, there's a story over at Bloomberg this morning, you know, saying Rishi Sunak supported plans to increase taxes further. Uh, yeah, I was speaking to, like me, a, a very a very nerdy Conservative MP, and, and they were saying, look, in the next round of the Conservative election, the media organisations that are going to shape what members do are the Mail, which has essentially become a, a the media outlet of the stop Act is monstering him every day. Yeah. The Telegraph, yeah, they were saying actually been broadly fair. The Spectator, which has been broadly fair. And the Times, which has been broadly fair. Those, those are the media organisations which will really matter in terms of this leadership election. And they were saying, well... This is someone who is very anxious about, you know, what happens if Truss or more unlikely now, Kemi Badnock were to were to, to beat him, saying, well, he's going to be monstered by the paper my members read every week, so he can't win. And so I think that is both the content of the briefing and the fact people know it's going to be relentless is a big problem for him. Now, George, let's look over to Penny Morden. I went to her campaign launch in probably the hottest, sweatiest room I've ever been in my life. And the fact is, I think when this race started, nobody gave Penny Morden much of a chance because she's a junior trade minister. She's not seemed to have achieved a whole lot in office. And I think some people have raised questions about whether she has the depth to be prime minister. But I think we got that wrong. The fact is, she got lots of MPs by essentially going around all the other campaigns and picking off supporters here and there. And then suddenly emerged in a very strong second place in the first two rounds of voting. And in her leadership launch, she very much talked about, you know, an optimistic, upbeat thing. We heard her talk about Paul McCartney at Glastonbury at the beginning. Do you think she really could be our next prime minister? There is a possibility that Penny Morden could be our next prime minister, which would come as a surprise to quite a few people listening to this podcast, and I suspect in the wider public. I I think there was a poll last week which suggested that only 11% of British people could identify Penny Morden correctly from her picture, and some people thought she was the singer Adele. So it's a strange state of affairs where someone who is virtually unknown to huge segments of the British public could become leader, but that's a possibility. I mean, her lack of visibility and the fact people don't know much about her is obviously one of her strongest suits in this leadership contest. She's offering to be a fresh start. She also plays all the right tunes as far as the party membership's concerned and the party's abiding Thatcher worship cult uh, which still survives today. It was significant. One of the first things she said at her leadership launch you were at, Seb, one of her formative political experiences was standing on the docks at Portsmouth Harbour and watching the Margaret Thatcher's task force heading off to the Falkland Islands when she was age nine. So she says the right thing. She's obviously a Brexiteer. Interestingly, she has been seen as a bit of a woke warrior, a social liberal in the past, which is a fascinating thing, something she's trying to conceal as hastily as she can during the course of this campaign. But nevertheless, I think the thing about her is she, yes, she's, a, she's not in Boris Johnson's cabinet. That's an advantage to her. People don't know much about her. You can project whatever you like onto her. That's an advantage. And the other thing is she, she speaks human. And I think that's one of the things that Keir Starmer's supporters are a bit worried about, that she appears quite natural. She's obviously comfortable in her own skin in a way which you didn't quite see with Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss when they launched their campaigns this week. They just looked a bit overscripted, stilted. Penny Morden looks like a natural, and that will take her so far, but you will get a lot of hostile briefing about Penny Morden, her record in government, whether she's up to the job over the weekend. And you and I have had loads of that over the last few days of people just getting in touch to say, you know, if you speak to any civil servant, none of them will think she's prime ministerial material. That kind of briefing 
would be very difficult to throw off. Well, Miss Morland did respond to these accusations in an interview with LBC this week. I mean, I have served in great offices of state, um, but I have been uh, uh, in a junior ministerial role. Boris brought me back in to help the country through the pandemic, and I was very happy to, to do that and serve. But we are really at both a inflection point for our country and also entering some very, very difficult times. I think we have to be honest uh, to people about that. Stephen, what do you make of this? Like, do you think there is some substance to it or is this just an attack because everyone's worried? And obviously, I think Rishi Sunak's campaign are very worried because if she's in the final two, as you said, every bit of polling would suggest she would smash him. It is unquestionably true to say that of the cabinet role she held under Theresa May as Defeat Secretary, you know, she, she won a lot of friends in the international development sector because you know, she's personally very warm, very charismatic, as I think comes through uh, on the clips we've heard. But it's very hard to point to a distinct sort of mordant approach or policy achievement in that brief in a way you could with, say, Andrew Mitchell. And uh, she was essentially, in the grand scheme of things, Secretary of State for Defence for about five minutes. So it is it is fair to say that she does not have a particular record of achievement. And it is absolutely the case that she is broadly running as the candidate of things are bad for the party. I can win. Trust in me. But to a party which faces a difficult battle to be re-elected next time, that is very attractive. But it does mean if, say, over the course of the televised debates that that still lie ahead of us, she falters or she doesn't do as well when the most of the country will be seeing her for the first time, then suddenly you can see how what goes up can go down. Rory Stewart went backwards you know, after his first TV debate because he did not wow the public as he had been doing up until that point. But the real problem for her will be if, if anything happens that damages her electability argument. And finally, George, so well, obviously, we've got the first TV debates of this contest happening on Friday evening, which will be a big moment for all the candidates here. With these top two in mind, Rishi Sunak and Penny Morden, how do you think they're going to do? And where do you think this race is going to be by the time we hit the next round of voting on Monday? Well, the interesting thing about those two, Penny Morden and Rishi Sunak, is we haven't really seen them very much in televised debates. I think Stephen was making the point that Rishi Sunak hasn't appeared on Question Time or any questions. He is quick on his feet, but... Both of those two will be under pressure from their rivals. I think for Rishi Sunak's point of view, the danger is he looks a little bit too slick. Sometimes when you get him out of his comfort zone, which is obviously the economy, he starts to look a little bit nervous. As far as Penny Morden's concerned, I mean, she's the one who's going to be under the most pressure and the most scrutiny because we know least about her position. At the end, I mean, it's still so hard to call. We assume that Sunak will be on the final two. He's got to get to 120 votes to get there. He's on 101 at the moment. There's a danger that he starts to stall because in the next round, the votes of Suella Braverman are going to be redistributed, very pro-Brexit Attorney General. Not many of those votes are going to go to Rishi Sunak. So there's just a very, very slim possibility that Rishi Sunak slips at the final hurdle. I think it's unlikely. But then it's anyone's guess between the and the trust. George and Stephen, thank you very much. While all the focus might be on the top two contenders to be the next Tory leader, there are still three other candidates in the race who are scheduled to feature in the TV debates this weekend. The two outsiders left in the race are Kemi Badenoch, the strident former Equalities Minister, and Tom Tuggenhat, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. 
But the most notable other candidate is Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, who may still end up in the final two, but has struggled to gain momentum with a late campaign launch and a smaller number of MPs backing her than Penny Mordaunt. At her campaign launch event in Westminster, she embraced a neo-Thatchite pledge to slash taxes and the state. I have a plan to make Britain a high-growth economy over the next 10 years through bold supply-side reform. We will cut taxes, helping businesses invest in their future. We'll tackle the cost of energy and we'll control government spending. We will create new low-tax, low-regulation zones to attract investment in communities up and down our country, creating new hubs for innovation and enterprise. Jim Picard, welcome back to the pod. So let's begin with Liz Truss before this contest even began. She was widely assumed to be a very likely potential successor to Boris Johnson. But as of Friday morning, when we're recording, that is far from assured. Why do you think that is? Well, I think people have somewhat underestimated her chances here because although she's had a relatively slow start in terms of garnering the support of Tory MPs, she is still third on that matrix. And if you look at uh, an opinion poll earlier this week, I'm pretty sure it said that in a, a face-off between her and Rishi Sunak, she would win. The problem she's got is that Penny Mordaunt among the membership seems to be at this point much more popular. So the question is, is she going to get to the final two or not? And I think where her path to victory lies, or at least her path to getting to the final two lies, is that she's already got the endorsement of Suella Bravman, who was the kind of ERG right-wing Brexity candidate. So that could transfer quite a lot of support to her. And it's possible that if Kemi Bednock gets knocked out, that's another 49 MPs, many of which could go towards her as a kind of right-wing Eurosceptic candidate. But of course, the irony of all this is that she is getting endorsements from loads of hardcore Brexiteers. But in 2016, she was a Remainer. So we have this rather bizarre situation where someone like David Campbell Bannerman, who's a a very pro-Brexit former MEP, can say things like, only Liz Truss can save Brexit now. I thought Brexit had already happened, first point. Second point, they are rallying behind a former Remainer and trying to dismiss people like Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt, who did actually support Brexit in 2016. They are dismissing them as not the real deal when it comes to Euroscepticism. Well, Camilla Cavendish, it's an absolute delight to have you back on the podcast again. What do you think about Liz Truss's candidacy? Because as I said, she's been sort of almost running for quite a long period of time. Even when she was appointed International Trade Secretary, she became renowned for her glitzy Instagram account, her striking outfit, a photographer following her around every corner. Yet it feels like she came quite late into this with Rishi Sunak launching last Friday, as did Tom Tuckenhat, who we'll come on to. And when we've had the first two ballots of MPs round, she's come in third place each time, picking up more MPs, still gaining a bit of momentum, but not really being where you thought she might be at this stage. Yes, I mean, despite uh, launching late, the Parliamentary Party has been thinking about Liz Truss for a long time. And actually, six months ago, I think most of us would have said... You know, she was a very likely winner. A lot of MPs in the last few months have said to me that they found it sort of unsettling that she has done so much grandstanding. She does seem to have cared a lot about her image. And the irony, as you said earlier, is that, of course, she is perceived as the kind of iron lady of the Northern Ireland Protocol, backed by all these Brexiteers, despite having been an ardent Remainer. I think because, in part, the right knows that if she becomes Prime Minister they can keep her hostage because she will never entirely be able to scrub away that stain of having once been a Remainer. And 
for the country, I'm not sure that makes her the ideal candidate. Well, Jim, there's obviously a battle going on for the right flank of the Conservative Party, though, as you mentioned, Suella Bavman, the Attorney General, she was kind of the candidate of the ERG, the most ardent Brexiters within the Tory party. She fell out in the second round of voting and has endorsed Liz Truss. She's also been endorsed by Lord David Frost, who is the sort of self-declared protector of Brexit as Boris Johnson's former negotiator. So it feels like she should be the obvious candidate of the right. And if you look at the various polls from YouGov and the Conservative Home website, if it comes down to Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss amongst the membership, she does look as if she would beat the former Chancellor. We have all sorts of ironies here, don't we? We have the fact that Lord Frost, the protector of Brexit, was himself opposed to Brexit six years ago. Ironically, we have the irony that Rishi Sunak, temperamentally, is actually quite right-wing and, and fiscally dry. And you know, we find ourselves in a situation where he's having to put up taxes, or he was when he was Chancellor, by a huge degree. But that was to sustain or pay back £400 billion of spending during the COVID pandemic to keep the economy going, which you'll remember was supported by all cabinet ministers at the time. I don't remember any voices speaking out and saying we should not be paying the furlough or anything like that. And yet, the fact that he was in charge at that time has now made him a kind of lightning rod for small state conservatives who think basically we should be cutting taxes and not putting them up. I think the other thing to say about Liz Truss is that of all of the candidates, she most definitely has the most ministerial experience. You know, Rishi Sunak is barely out of short trousers when it comes to being in government. I mean, he only entered Parliament, was it was it 15 or 17? It's not a very long time ago. 2015, uh, yeah. She'd already been in Cabinet at that point, and she's had various different roles. She's had justice, she's had environment, she's been Chief Secretary to the Treasury, so she understands economic stuff, as well as foreign secretary. And this is why at her launch at Smith Square earlier in the week, she was able to put forward the message that she'd be ready to be prime minister from day one, she could hit the ground running. And that's a very obvious dig at those such as Penny Mordaunt, who, apart from a very short stint as defence secretary, has basically only really been a junior minister. And people like Tom Tugendhat, who he hasn't been a minister mm. at all. And she's also making a big play of how she was loyal to Boris Johnson. And unlike certain people, brackets, Rishi Sunak, but she didn't try to bring down the great Brexiteer and much beloved former Prime Minister. I'm, I'm being slightly ironic on the much beloved bit. I think, Camilla, the main thing to say about Liz Truss is the fact that she's just a little bit awkward in her public persona. And I think you actually saw this at her launch where she came off the platform and got lost trying to leave and had to be directed by an age. And the BBC caught two people crying with laughter at the fact she got lost in her own launch. That's obviously a great metaphor for where her campaign is at the moment. And we're recording this before the first TV debate. And I think that is the thing where you've got Rishi Sunak, who comes across as very slick and smooth. You've got Penny Morden, who comes across as very confident and assured. And Liz Truss just has that feeling, and I saw this when I was watching her launch, of just a little bit not comfortable in her own skin. And you do think when you get into the debating arena, that's probably her biggest Achilles heel. She's always been a bit robotic. She's highly intelligent. And she would expect, as you've just said, I mean, given her ministerial experience, she really does understand what the role of prime minister involves. Um, so she would expect to be in the top two, but she has got this awkwardness with people, which can be very off-putting. I actually think Sunak has a bit of it too. He can be very defensive and quite brittle if he's not prepped. And funnily enough, I think that's partly where Penny Mordaunt is at the moment getting a bit of an advantage. People sort of feel more comfortable with her style. But we'll see in the TV debates. 
Now, Jim, let's look at the two other candidates briefly who are in the race. Who knows what's going to happen? But the feeling is that they're probably not going to be in the contention for the final two. The first one is Kemi Badnock. And she's the former qualities minister. Again, not been in parliament that long, got elected in 2017. Before that, she was in the London Assembly and had various parts of her business career. But what's been very interesting about Ms. Badnock is that she launched her campaign, got quite a lot of the 2017 intake on board, but she got the endorsement of Michael Goh, the former levelling up secretary and some Westminster wags would say that he's manipulating her campaign from behind the scenes. But you were at her launch. Tell us what it was like and what you make of her bid. So the way I would describe her is probably almost like a Jeremy Corbyn candidate, but for the right. Not quite as extreme in that Jeremy Corbyn was off the charts, left winger, like beyond the norms of the Labour Party. I mean, Kenny Badenock is well within the, the sort of traditions of the Conservative Party, but she's very much true blue, Thatcher right, small state, thinks that like trans issues and, and statues is all a load of nonsense and is not afraid to speak out. And that's why she generates a lot of love among Tory campaigners. You know, the room at Policy Exchange Think Tank in Westminster, where I went to her launch a couple of days ago, you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. It was it was pretty electric, I thought. You know, people really enthusiastic about her. I personally didn't think her delivery was very impressive. And and said, you'll probably disagree. I, I read your column suggesting that she had loads of good ideas. I thought some of her ideas were, were actually a bit thin. She talked about wanting to scrap net zero, saying it was leading to unilateral economic disarmament of the West. But then a couple of days later in the Times, she seemed to basically step back and say, well, actually, she, she didn't necessarily want to get rid of net zero. So I, I didn't see a lot of kind of consistency in her policies. And she also, took, she was talking about cost of living policies and saying, you know, we need something bigger rather than just chucking 50 quid here or there. It was almost as if she was pretending that Rishi Sunak hadn't already announced payments of £1,200 to millions of people that, that are coming in, in the autumn. And there was this very bizarre thing where she talks about Ben & Jerry as, as if the Ben & Jerry company were a bad thing because they don't just focus on profits. And, you know, I thought we'd got to a more sophisticated consensus understanding of business that yes, it should be making profits for shareholders, of course, but it should also be considering things like the welfare of staff and maybe giving a little bit back to society. I thought it was such a retro thing to say. Where I did think that she was quite impressive is that she wasn't tempted to get into this whole idea of announcing ginormous tax cuts that the country can't afford, whereas Nadim Zahawi, you remember, was talking about income tax cuts stopping the rise in corporation tax, cutting VAT on energy. She basically just said, I don't want to get into a bidding war. It's not credible for us to just be chucking these promises out without working them out. So I, I was quite impressed by her honesty on that one. But I do feel a bit like popular with the Tory grassroots. I don't know whether she'd be quite so popular with the public. I think there's probably an awful lot of truth to that. And as you mentioned, Jim, I did a column this week saying that the two most interesting candidates for me in the race are the ones who are least likely to win and become prime minister, which is Kenny Badnock and Tom Tuckenhab. But before we get on to Tom, Camilla, I sent you her pitch, which we'll just hear a little bit of now. To be, to be a prime minister who tells the truth because the truth will set us free. The problems run deep. And I'm in no doubt about the scale of the challenge any new prime minister will have to deal with. The underlying economic problems we face have been exacerbated by COVID and by war. But what makes the situation worse is that the answers to our problems, conservative answers, haven't been articulated or delivered in a way appropriate to the modern age. 
Well, her pitch is very much about trying to say, we've got big problems as a country, we need to confront them. And Jim Matt is right that, you know, I think she has put forward some interesting ideas, but there's a lot of gaps as well. It does feel a little bit unrealistic that she could go from being essentially a qualities minister to prime minister with no cabinet experience and not much political experience either. I think Jim's being a bit hard on Kemi. I think she's terrific. I don't think she's ready to be prime minister. But I think she's been one of the only candidates to actually say that a weight was lifted off her shoulders when Boris Johnson went. I think she does have ideas and she would represent a real break with Johnson in a way that I think other candidates are kind of struggling to put forward. And of course, she does admit that there's a trade-off between tax and spending, which again, I mean, it's ridiculous that every candidate doesn't admit that. But, But we are in a bizarre debate here. There is really no serious policy being discussed. So I think she's definitely one to watch. And I think that the fact that she has the backing of Michael Gove, who is her boss, is significant. I think he feels that she is somebody who is actually good at execution and delivery. And as you say, she's a kind of true blue conservative. She's not afraid to talk about a small state. She's not afraid to talk about problems with, with bureaucracy. And I just find that quite refreshing. And finally, Jim, the last candidate in the race is Tom Tugginghat, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. And as he's been saying endlessly, his pitch is about needing a clean start. We need leadership with a renewed sense of mission. Leadership that sees beyond divisive politics and delivers results. Leadership that will return government to the service of our economy, our people and our country. We need a clean start. For me, that is much more than just a slogan or a catchphrase. It's a mission statement. It describes our path forward together. It summarises our advance orders for the next decade. Jim, Tom Tuckenhat is very, you know, he's the candidate with the most distance from Boris Johnson still within the race. His votes actually went backwards between the first and second round. And I think his remaining pitch is to use these TV debates to try and push himself forward on a national level. But it doesn't feel as if he's going to get anywhere near the last two at this point. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's a reflection on Tom Tugendhat's skills. You know, he's a charismatic figure. He has great moral integrity. If you look at a lot of his positions on foreign affairs in recent years, he's been ahead of the curve on, on things like dealing with Beijing. But the party has changed over the last 10, 15 years. He's very much a one-nation conservative of the sort Michael Heseltine or, or Ken Clark. There are far fewer of those type of MPs in the party these days, you know, relatively centrist, pro-EU, not least because most of them got chucked out by Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings when they were friends back in 2019. And so if he fails, it's possibly more of a reflection on the party than on him. He reminds me a bit of David Cameron in that he has a sort of pleasing manner. He, he seems to have integrity, decency. He's quite an amiable kind of guy. His policy positions, what did he have? He was suggesting that there would be tech institutes in every town and city. He was suggesting you could bring military experts into the NHS. He's talking about getting four-hour waiting lists for A&E. If he's serious about improving the NHS, I didn't then understand why he's also promising to reverse the national insurance rise of Rishi Sunak's, which is designed to infuse the NHS and social care with much more money. There's a bit of a contradiction there, I thought. Also, interestingly, for a One Nation Conservative, not very green either. He wants to cut fuel duty by 10th a litre, and he talked about potentially delaying net zero, if necessary, on national security grounds. So less green than one might have expected. I think he'll be out pretty quickly, but he may put up a good fight in the TV debates over the weekend. Let's see. I think, Camilla, much like 
Kemi Badnock, um, you know, it would take essentially a remarkable transformation for Liz Truss's supporters to go over to her for her to get into the final two. But it feels like this power very much focused on the next government. And it's been baffling to some people in Westminster why Tom Tuckenhout wasn't in the cabinet. The answer was that he fell out with Boris Johnson. And Boris Johnson is not a man known for forgetting slight. But he has performed well, I think. He did a press conference that I went to on Thursday, where he just turned up for an hour and said, come and ask me anything. And journalists asked him on all sorts of issues. You know, he's got a very good, relaxed media man. And I think you can see a little bit of the David Cameron edge to him. And it feels like he will end up in the next government, whoever wins. Well, you'd expect me to say, Seb, that he would be my preferred candidate in this roster because he is a one nation Tory. I am and, shocked. And I am shocked, you are shocked to say that. Um, but, but the irony for him is, of course, that because he has integrity, because he was actually talented, Boris Johnson kept him out of the cabinet, which means he is not able to claim he has that experience. And I have a feeling that in the TV debates, the country might warm to Tom Tugendhat rather more than the right of the party has. I think he has the advantage that he's not tarnished in any way by the Johnson years. And to be honest, he's one of the only candidates who has talked about the NHS and has talked about fuel bills and, and the things that actually ordinary people are worrying about. The rest of them are all locked in this fantasy of unfunded tax cuts, claiming a Thatcherite mantle, which is completely wrong. I mean, that's not what Thatcher did at all. Mm. So, you know, who knows? He may improve his ratings, but I'm sure he's not going to end up Prime Minister. And finally, to put you both on the spot, Jim, what's your prediction for the final two? I'm so bad at making predictions, Seb, you should know that by now. But all I would say is don't be surprised if Liz Truss and Penny Morton end up with a, a face-off at the end of this. And Camilla? Drat, Jim, I was going to say exactly the same, but I'll have to say something different now. I mean, I, <laughs> I, think, let's, I think I'll go for Sumac Mordant, but I, I think Mordant will be in the final two. Well, let me just go and take the groupthink conventional Westminster wisdom and say that I'm going to go for Sunak trust, assuming neither blow up at the debates. But Jim and Camilla, thank you so much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also love positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Edwin Lane and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources. 
uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.